you came over with your parents over to Britain and yeah. I wanted to ask you at home did your parents try and merge the Jamaican culture with this new British culture that you were being exposed to? Okay there wasn't anything conscious about merging cultures we just people just lived their lives um, in, in the house that we lived in in, in Battersea we ate mostly Jamaican, well, Jamaican food or food that was prepared in the Jamaican way, whatever it is that they they could afford, really. Um, we listened to um, whatever music I would imagine was popular in Jamaica. I remember the, I remember the, the. The, is it what's it called? Blue Spot? It was a gramophone that we had in the front room um, playing, who can I remember? Lloyd Price, Staggerly. I don't know if he was popular in Jamaica at the time, but there was, certain, there was a certain um, culture that was common to migrants. And I, I don't think there was anything conscious uh, about, about really, you know, living in a particular way. They just lived their life the way that they found comfortable and which and, and supported each other, and of course it would have been um, mostly Jamaican because they, everybody who came to the house would have been um, Jamaican. Occasion, well, I wouldn't say, I wasn't sure everybody was Jamaican. Certainly Caribbean, and I'm pretty sure the majority would have been Jamaican. Some would have been Caribbean. Um, I don't remember many white people coming to to a house, even though we lived on a street. Um, in Battersea, where there was, there would have been a certain, uh, most of most of the street would have been white at that time, but I think in that area as well, it would a lot of the people would have been white working class. Um, I think Battersea was that way um, constructed at the time. Yeah, so I think it was Jamaican migrant culture, I would say, rather than um, any attempt to retain. It's what they had and what they used to survive, really. And what kind of reception did you and your family receive when you moved to Battersea? Um, I wasn't. I think they'd they'd start they'd move there just probably some months before we came. Um, there wasn't. Oh, there wasn't. Um, I can't remember many overt acts of racism at that time. I think there were there there'd been talk about that kind of thing before and I know that that happened in Notting Hill but we I didn't experience it um, so overtly um, in Battersea there was a certain amount of that in school you know being called names you know like wog those, those that kind of thing with, with the children but certainly on on the street where I lived I don't remember um, much of that um, um, quite the opposite in a different kind of way. I know that we were, we were certainly were very poor. And I remember the lady at the, at one end of the street, the white family left, um, clothes and shoes for us on the, on the doorstep. That, that kind of, um, I don't know if it was meant to demean, but certainly a recognition that it was a poor family living in that house where we lived. Um, 
But the outright name calling, I didn't experience it that much on the streets. It was more likely in schools. But then I didn't really go out very much. And could you talk to me about how you got involved with the Black Panthers and the first time that you were aware of the movement? Oh, you! I remember I came to England when I was nine. So I had I went through one year of primary schooling, and then of course the a whole six years in secondary school. So it's a long accumulated period to go from um, coming to coming to England and then becoming involved in the movement. Um, if you look, if I think I talked about in the article I wrote that it wasn't my first example. I think certainly my early experiences of school led me to see that the certain things were not right. The way I was placed in school, um, in primary school, I was from primary school, I was placed in what was then called a secondary modern. I don't remember taking uh, an 11 plus, but I know I must have done at some point because we would have taken it in the last year at school. I don't know what happened to it. My parents were not involved in in my education at all. They didn't really see the need to go, you know, go into the school and talk to the teacher uh, and do any of that stuff, which it seems to be you know, absolutely necessary, which turned out to be absolutely necessary and is certainly necessary now. So I was placed in the second secondary modern school, Lavender Hill School for Girls. I was in the the C stream. I don't think that was the lowest, but it was like the middle stream, the middle, middle stream. I think there was probably five streams in the school. And um, I found the work there that it was it wasn't very it was not particularly challenging and also found the children, a lot of the girls at the school really quite racist. I was always involved in, in quite a lot of fights. And um, but I was also good at doing the work. So every year I would be I would be top of the class and okay. And then Eventually, I had a P, uh, yes, a PE teacher who I didn't know that directly at the time, but I think she was going to the head teacher and telling and and telling her that she should move me out of that particular stream because every year I'd come top of the class, and eventually, I think it was in the fourth year, after three years in a row, she moved me to the top stream. Um, I don't know if they were so keen to move me because I was known as somebody who was, was always in fights, really. And those fights are really about children calling me names. So, so I was experiencing that kind of, you know, the casual brutality of young people. So you, 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 you asked me what had led me to the, um, to, the, um, to the BPM. So those kind of early experiences of, 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 of racism from you know, overt racism school children, but recognizing that the school system had really, you know, had really misapplied my 
my abilities uh, to, you know, mis misunderstood my abilities. To but no, no, I wasn't the only one. There are other black girls in that, that school who could have gone on and in fact did go on. They went into further education and, and, and had great careers. I was just lucky that one teacher showed an interest in me because I was fighting, really. And she realized I was frustrated, so she kept going to the, to the head teacher. So it was that experience, lived experience, but there was also experience from books because I was a great reader. And I discovered my greatest discoverer was James Baldwin at that particular time. And, and all of his work, I was reading from the age of 15, 15 onwards, and he became a kind of commentary about what happens to black people in these in these societies in these metropoles and that's how i saw it i was in a strange land and this was this was what was happening to me so the so the experience of reading him of of seeing what was happening in america with people like um malcolm x reading Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and having those two sets of ideas jostling in my brain about, you know, what, how is it, how do we move forward? You know, this is what, what is the best way for us to move forward? Um, I joined a, a black arts workshop that was organized by somebody called Ansel Wong. I don't know if you've met him, but I know he was, um, he was, Work, he worked with the BLF at one point and the Black People's Information Center. And he was a director of this Black Arts Workshop that we had. And what we used to do, it was like a small creative youth group. We used to um, dramatize, learn, dramatize and perform um, Black consciousness poetry to youth groups across the country. And we did that for about two years. And that also helped to um, raise our level of consciousness as well. And at that time, after I was in that group, I went, to, I went away to, to, to college to train to become a teacher. And it's only when I came back down to London after three years, you know, 2021, that I decided that I, I really wanted to go into a community where I could give back and the community that seemed most appropriate at the time, I was living in Battersea. My parents lived in Battersea, but Battersea wasn't a black community. It was not where I could see myself. I couldn't see myself reflected in, um, in, in Battersea, but in Brixham, which was where my parents started, in fact. So I knew it. I knew its history, and I knew my parents' history. Then. That is where I went um, and started teaching. And... Uh, I started teaching in a school that was accidentally almost totally black because that's where the children to make primarily Jamaican children went. Um, at the same time, I started teaching at that school. Um, I was in contact with Olive, Olive Morris, because she we went to the same school. She was two years below me, but she told me of certain things that had happened to her in Brixton, in fact, um, with her being attacked by the police and we started talking about the behavior of the police around young black people because all of us there's a big contingent of us who were growing up at that time and once you reach a certain age you do start to walk on the streets and you want to feel you can go about you know not being escorted by parents but go uh, uh, um, in your in your own groups of being uh, accosted and 
and stopped by the police. And she recounted some of those in incidents and told me about that group, which actually had heard about um, the, the Black Panthers that she was a member of, she was now a member of. And I said, you know, let me go and see and find out what they're about. And that's how I came to be there through, as I say, my lived experience, what I'd read and thought about, and also the experience of the example of Olive. And um, I want to backtrack uh, just a second. I found it quite interesting when you were talking about, obviously, the strong influence that was coming from America, because that's a theme yeah. that I've seen in all of my interviews. Everyone's talking about this American literature that was moving into Britain and creating the movement over here. And um, were you aware of early, um, the early moments of the Black Power movement? So was Stokely Carmichael coming to the Roundhouse and uh, Obi Igbuna's uh, Destroy This Temple uh, book? Were you aware of that early activity or was it mainly coming from America? Um, I, I was aware of it, but I'm, I think memory is a funny thing. You you remember not what you want to remember. You remember the things that are most that are most resonant, and the, the things that were most resonant to me are the things I, I definitely experienced. I don't remember um, going. I certainly, in fact, I would have remembered. I'm sure I'd have remembered if I'd gone and seen Stokely Carmichael. I knew of it, but I don't remember it impacting it uh, on me in the same way. That's why I talk about memory. You can only be truthful about the things that are re that really that really resonate with you now. You know, 50 years later, that and it is that. You know, nearly 50 years later. I, when you mention that, that is not strange. I'm not saying it's strange, but I'm saying it's not something I think that led me to to be a part of. That. It's more been in Brixton and teaching in that school and and talking to parents and talking to people around me that led me to that so led me to that movement so I think I was more community oriented than you know being led by some big important figures I have to say that I'm not <laughs> I'm not a follower in that way I I perhaps respond more to those um, grassroots um, needs and ideas as I see them. I would, um, after after um, school, um, I'm more than likely, I would be in the house of the, the parents of uh, the children I taught and we'd be talking about, you know, what they were doing and are they going to keep themselves safe rather than in anything else. And what was your first impression of the Black Panther movement at the time? Because when you joined, uh, that would have been at the time that Althea Joan Laquant was, <laughs> that was at the uh, helm of it. I was there. Yes, I was there at that time. I think I joined at the end of 1970. I know that I know that the case was going on, the Mangrove Nine, and it was it, it was one of the kind of major items at that time because people would come back and report on the progress of the case. Um, they'd have certain people who would be 
allocated that they will be going to to the to be at the trial to be observers on on that day. I don't remember myself being directly involved so much in in it in in it by by going to the court. I don't remember going to court, but I do remember it was it was very important. Althea was. Remember, we had a, a a part of the group was also in North London, right? So she was not in um, in in South London as much. I was involved in the group that was on 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 Shakespeare Road. What I was most involved in was one. I remember the study groups because when you first came, not not when you first came in. I think everybody was involved in the study groups. Yes, and. You also had to be involved in door to door, and because um, Brixton was my Patrick, because that's where my school was, I would I would do door to door. I did door to door with Linton. That's the two of us. That was one of the things that we had to do. And one of the things I was quite involved in quite a lot, which I didn't talk about in my last article, was in the. Um, was in the Saturday school, the supplementary school, because I was a teacher. I came there, um, I think I was a couple of years older than a lot of the people, if you think that I'd gone away to college for three years and had come back. So I came back as a, as a teacher and I was responsible. Not, not, I can't remember if I was responsible, but I know I was really involved in the Saturday school in going and getting um, picking up the children, that's what we do, pick up the children and bring them to the school and take them back home. And so it was, it was quite a lot. And that, that was my, one of the, my main contributions. So you talk about going door to door with uh, Linton, Crazy Johnson. And my next yeah. question to you were, were the activities conducted by male Panthers the same as the activities that were given to the female Panther members? Uh huh. <laughs> you mean? Are you trying to ask me about sexism? You're going to come to that. Yes. <laughs> no, we. I think they had male and female groups. I'm trying to remember if that how um, Linton, Linton, and I were in a, also in a in an art uh, a poetry group in the Panthers as well. Yeah, you know about that. Yes. So we're in those kind of based on our interests, because I was interested in writing poetry and he was, of course, interested in writing poetry and went on to become a poet. Um, but we would, there, were, there probably would have been, they would see that there should be male and female going out together, right? Just that would be a better way way to work. I, I don't think there was directly, um, well, it could have been that they saw that the male is a protector, but I don't, I don't think so. Uh, but w certainly I wanted to go out because I knew um, a lot of the parents and where the parents lived, the people who had children on those roads off Ekelein and so on. Um, afterwards, uh, I, I was reading something that suggested to me that maybe some of the members thought that they... Um, that the school was something that was very female. I, at the time, I didn't, I didn't think that. I don't remember thinking that this was something that only women were involved in. And it might be, it might be that women were interested in teaching. I don't know, but I was a teacher, and I got involved in that because it allowed me to do some of the things um, I was doing in, um, in school in 
the school I taught in, in Brixton. Now, you previously described the Black Panther movement as being an educational group for consciousness raising. In what way did your membership within the Panther movement influence the way you saw yourself and your identity? It was very important. I think it was a very important group for a lot of people around at the time. People were members, people who were associated with the groups and people who were friends of, of people associated with the group. Because I think there, were, there was a network of people who might not have come to all the study groups, but would come maybe, they would support maybe a demonstration or they might support one of the dances because we had a lot of those recreational activities or might go to an open house when they had youth league, I think it was youth league at Oval House, those kinds of things. Um, and what it encouraged us to do, I think one, it encouraged you to be quite fearless in a way, to think that it was possible that what you did could make a difference and would make a difference in the world and the difference you were making for other black people around the world. So even though we started off and we saw ourselves as being based in one community, my community then was Brixton, you, you also felt that, you know, you what you were doing could impact what was happening in Africa um, and that you could link with people in America and people in Jamaica, because even at that time, Jamaica was still very important, very important to me. I always felt that I was, um, I was, I was Jamaican. But um, yes, you felt, you felt, you felt powerful that the actions that you took could make a difference, and that black people should take action. Yes. So that's the idea of the activists <laughs> that you should just you know just sit around and, and wait for somebody else that you should get involved you should get involved yeah i'll pick up on that point you just made about how you felt that you had an impact beyond your own locale so you knew that it was going to impact africa and america did you feel that london being the metrop the metropole did you feel that it was a center for debates around race and citizenship um, I, I don't know if we, I'm trying to think if we felt that, we felt that it was important and I'm trying to be honest, just to think back if I felt at that time, yes, oh, to be in London. No, because you could go out to other places. I mean, we, we had networks in, in um, Birmingham and Manchester, certainly, Bristol. Cardiff even, <laughs> as places where we, we, we would spread our wings and, uh, and network with the, people, uh, with the people around. More and more I, I, I'm seeing that London, maybe more recently I'm seeing that it was important that a lot of these, these um, organizations, it's significant that a lot of them were in London. But I don't think if we, we we sat down and thought about it in that way. It's just where we were and where we landed as um, children of, uh, of migrants. That's where they wanted the migrants and that's where the children came. And that's where we, we grew up 
And that's where we had to, you know, make our stand. In the history of um, black radicalism in Britain, from what I've seen, London has been a quite an important battleground. So if you look at the tradition in the 30s, well, the 1920s and 30s, with people like C.L.R. James, Amy Ashwood Garvey, yes. there yes. does seem to be yeah. something about that capital that drew people who had radical ideas about changing the situation for black people. Oh, you mean the center of empire? Yes, it seemed to draw people with different experiences yes. of colonialism, uh, racism in America, and then here they were meeting together. Yes, yes. But do you think it's because people set out thinking we are going to London for that? But it, there might be quite uh, mundane reasons why um, you would end up in London if you were recruited, if London transport. So there's a kind of reason of empire that the empire <laughs> sent out. London transport um, went to the West Indies to, to recruit um people for their for their system my father that's where he worked yes or the national or who was the minister of health it was powell wasn't it you know Powell? i don't know if that's true it was a minister of health who was recruiting um nurses for the um for the hospitals and they would have been largely largely in london so people i suppose people gravitate to the center of empire because and also i think people you tend to want to be with and that's the way i felt about brixton so you, you want to be in a place where there's a certain kind of comfort and safety and security that you find with people like yourself especially in an atmosphere of hostility as well yeah and in your um, autoethnography, you spoke about the tension between some of the members and the leadership within the movement. Yeah. And um, I was wondering if you could talk to me about how those tensions played out. I think the tension was between a leadership who might have been very clear about what they wanted to do and what they wanted to get out of their organization. And there would have been younger members who, who came in with a lot of heat and who really wanted to take on, um, take on the system and who might not have been so clear about, about some of the consequences. And let me say, uh, frankly, I think a lot of a lot of people benefit, many of us benefited from the movement, and many of us came to get a clear understanding of our society um, from studying and working in the movement. And some people, I think, benefited materially or even career-wise, but I think there are also some young people who were broken um, by the movement. I think there are people in, when you, for an example, if you talk about um, your attitude towards the police. Yes? Um, you can talk about Babylon system and the, um, and all those, all those names that we call the police and all, all of that. But you take that, if you're, two or three of you are alone at night, or if, or if you get stopped by the police, you know, and there's enough of them, you know that if you say certain things, or if you do certain things, you're going to get, a, you, they will arrest you for obstruction, right? 
Now, there are ways in which you handle the police. It's only like in a few years later when we had uh, more like law centers where you really had information about how you approach the police in order to still maintain your rights, but also do, do it in a way in which it wouldn't be inevitable that you would get you would get arrested. That, that's one example. Do you understand what I mean? I don't know if, 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 if you can see, but there are, as I said, who took, who took the polemics as a way in which they should organize their everyday, everyday lives. And it ended up with people getting, sometimes it might only be you just get, um, you might get a record, a police record which for some young black men is a very, very serious, is a very serious blot on your, your other prospects. Or so people decided, you know, that it was, um, it was petty bourgeois to have an education or to go to university. And bright, bright people never went. Yeah? So, if, so that, and, but there are other people who might have been saying it was petty bourgeois because they'd had an education. They'd already been to university. So I, I think there were some ways in which the, um, the polemics um, uh, did not really live up to the way people live their lives, yes? And there are some people who took it um, at, at face value. We don't want to kind of valorize uh, uh, a way, the way in which we operate and say that there weren't casualties in that way. I really liked um, what you wrote in your journal when you said that people looking at that history shouldn't mm. view it as a monolith. They shouldn't see yeah. that everyone was agreeing on the same ideological debate. And I think it's so important that we include um, discussion about some of the debates that were going on when it came to gender, when it came to generational divides within the movement. So yeah. I think that's an important point to and, and it wasn't very big because the majority of the membership might have been between 17 and say 21, 22. I was on the older side of that. And also I said because I'd been to, I'd been already been to college, so I had an education. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have any debate about whether I should go to college or not and say, oh, don't bother with that, you know, it's Babylon system. Well, you know, Babylon system, you still... <laughs> you don't want to be to be signing on um, um, forever. Um, so there, there was that. So it would have been like 17 to 21. But the older people, now, the, the people in the leadership, they would have been like in their late 20s. So it wasn't like a big, you know, that there was a lot of old people. There were certainly enough people who had more, a few more years experiences to to so they're able to make um, better or other judgments. So once the black women's group rose from the ashes, rose from the ashes as you mentioned, did you have any um, alliances with white feminist groups or did you feel that they didn't really care about the black women's uh, experience? Well, we had uh, links with because I can even remember from our reading, because we we had um, it was really quite inclusive, even though we start the core was um, women from Panthers, and the other women 
almost immediately people like Girl in Bean and she she had come from white women's group Gail. People from all over became black women from came from all different places, all different spaces to be part of that group. It was the first group, it was the first time that black women were sitting and and talking about some of the things we felt were particularly important um, to us. I mean some um, there were there are people who are against it. They said we're just, you know, bourgeois women that we want to meet like that, you know, imitating, you know, white women and such like. But it was women coming from all over, with all different kind of issues. Um, we didn't, but we kind of struggled, and maybe we over um, emphasized the fact that we were political and it wasn't personal. So we concentrated on making sure that women from liberation movements were well represented in those that we had. We always talked about our campaigns in Southern Africa, invited women from those um, groups to attend our meetings. But yes, we had representation from, from everywhere. And we also, many of us were started to become involved in different groups in the community, like in parents' groups, in anti-fascist, yes, anti-fascist, um, anti-racist groups, you know, because the National Front had a resurgence in the 70s and our members were involved in that, you know, the, the, the women were working with the, with the SUS groups were also active. So there's a lot of cross-fertilization and we just, we came together um, as women with all of those issues. And one of the activities that took place was the creation of the Sabah Bookshop. Ah, oh, yes, yes, that was from the very beginning, because the, uh, I should say, and this is important to say, yes, I didn't mean to leave it out at all. At the same time as the B, uh, BWG started, that same building was occupied by um, the bookshop that we started, Sabah Bookshop, um, with Ira, Ira Flati. I don't know if you've heard of him. No, he was... But he, but I don't think he's 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 been around since that time. Some people have just not made; <laughs> they've left. But let me just say, there was a member of the, the Panthers who was also involved in book trading, who became central in Sabah books. Very important in it. Wouldn't have been able to do it without um, his involvement. So people bring their strength, and that, that was his strength. It was the first of its kind in South London, really, because at the time you only had um, New Beacon in North London, you had Bogolachore in West London, and you had Sabah Books in, in South London. Yeah. So even before the bookshop, there were Black-owned media publications. So you had Black Voice for BUFP, yes. you had uh, Freedom News, why was the bookshop an important venture for your your collective? Oh, because you needed to have access to black content. You can't you you couldn't really spend your day simply reading Black Voice and Freedom News. It was very important, certainly for the the section we had on education. We started collect, collecting, so we had a strong section on the children's books 
And you also had all the books that we wanted to read as adults, all the black literature coming out, uh, coming some of it coming out of America, some of it, a bit of it coming out of Africa, wherever we could find it. A lot of it came out of America, of course. But you needed to have a place where you could get black literature, of course. Why would you even ask? <laughs> I mean, of course we saw the, the, the local newsletters, and there were many of them at the time. Now, as we've touched upon, you were a teacher um, from early on, and yeah. I was wondering if you could tell the story about the Angela Davis poster and the school inspector. <laughs> oh, because I was teaching in my school, um, and of course I decorate my classroom with all kinds of posters, you know, of any, what I really always wanted to have were, were always wanted posters of black people because I thought that that's part of the education. I was giving my children to know that, you know, black people can be on posters, can be on walls and can be celebrated. And I had the poster, Angela Davis, that I bought for myself. I said, let me put it up in my, my classroom. And it was the poster, I can't remember exactly the words. Um, this, I think it was the spirit of the people. Is great, was that the one? Is greater than the man's technology? I, well, anyway, it had a quote from Angela Davis. And in those days, the inspectors used to come in, the local authority inspectors would come in and would sit in your class or just have, come and have a chat with you. And when I knew that this one was coming, I was looking around the classroom to make sure everything was, was okay. And then I saw this poster Ah, I think it said the real criminals in our society are not those who inhabit the prisons, yes, but those who stole in the wealth. I think that was a quote, because I had several posters of, of her with, with different quotes. And when I saw that quote, I said, oh no, this inspector is not going to fully appreciate the, the, what I've put up. So I just turned over, I just turned over the bottom of the, the poster, pin, pinned it up, and he came in and talked to me and he was very happy with what I was teaching and with the books. Um, he, was, he was okay with um, having black literature, but I think the Angela Davis poster about the real criminals in society, um, I think might have been a bridge too far for him. But it was fine after that, after he left. I got a, a good grade as a first year teacher. And you had a mixed uh, you had mixed pupils within your class and you te speak about teaching them black history, listening to yes. black music during the classes and today that would be classed as decolonizing the curriculum. That's what I realized. I, you know when you hear these terms that you know, you say, oh, so that's what they mean. I've heard about this term decolonizing the curriculum and we're talking about something I was doing in 19, between 1970, I, I taught those children between 1970 and 1975, I was at that school. And, and, and to me, that was, the, that was the only way. You had to teach about the content that was relevant to them. You had to teach about Africa, but not just Africa. Yes, we had the stories about African plants and animals, but also about African people who were free, freedom fighters, who were actually fighting to free up their land. So they knew about Mandela and Amilcar Cabral and Samora Machel and those people as well. 
and, and you and you could you could is a way in which you can simplify those stories so you talk about people who are fighting to um, to free their land as well as telling them all the you know great ancient stories of you know Shaka Zulu and all those others as well. And also the Jamaican equivalent. So they knew about Marcus Garvey and the Rastafarians and what, you know, the flora and fauna of Jamaica uh, and the Caribbean. And that kind of curriculum, I think, is really, is really to strengthen each individual child. The child also needs a kind of defense against the negativity that they were experienced at that particular time. Negativity that I remembered. I remembered, you know, shouting that someone who was calling me black, they're saying, I'm not black, and holding up, like, um, I think it was a blackberry. They said, no, I'm not black. And I didn't want the children I was teaching to be going through that and having that sense of, you know, that they weren't um, worthy and so on. And I just think how fortunate those kids must have been because even today we don't get taught black history. So if in in the 1970s you were teaching them black history and we haven't caught up yet, I don't don't know what's happening. Well, I don't, well, that's why I have to talk about, and and I'm saying that was why the bookshop, that was why the Saturday school was important and that was why the bookshop, was important to have those books and that's why the black studies movements and those things that came out of uh, early those early years that's why it's important but somewhere along the way we stopped i don't know if i don't know why we stopped may that's another story about when things get um institutionalized they kind of lose their way sometimes i think um we stopped doing that so we have to go back to decolonizing the um the curriculum now. And I wanted to move on to talking a bit about today. And I wanted to ask you, do you think black radicalism is still relevant for 21st century Britain? Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I think there's never an age where you don't have to um, uh, to make a stand. Because I think if you don't, sometimes I think it, go, it goes Backwards, because if you think about those those earlier times when we when we, we talked about um, opposition to police brutality, I think you still see that now, even today, and in America, and I'm sure certain same things in in, in the UK and in other countries. The Black Lives Matter movement is a continuation of that of that kind of opposition to police brutality. When we were um, making the stand through things like squatting about about bad housing, what could have been worse than the Grenfell fire in, in looking at something like bad, um, bad housing? When you talk about ESN, that was something else, educationally subnormal schools being stuffed full of black children. Nowadays, I might not call them ESN schools, but you still have well, I won't say you still have. I know of things that we used to have intermediate, like sin bins and disruptive units, and I, I'm sure they have a name for them today, where they, where those children are housed, maybe not so harshly, who are seen as being um, 
unable to, to fit into the school system. I don't know what they call them now because I'm not there this time, but I don't think you eradicate most of those problems that have been eradicated. Some of them have been ameliorated, but they, but they, you need to you need to keep up the kind of pressure. As I always say to young people, you know, you can make you can make gains, but they're always provisional. They can always be taken away. And if you're not vigilant, you know, that is likely to be what happens. And the Black Power movement in the 70s coalesced around this idea of political blackness. And in the UK, that's... What is that? I don't... That's another one, like decolonizing the curriculum. You have to explain political blackness to those people. I think it's a university term, right? Political blackness um, was the idea that if you weren't white, you could join together under the brand black. So whether yeah. you were Asian, uh, yes. whether you were from China, you could come yeah. together against racism. Yes, very good explanation. <laughs> that, that's an issue that's caused a lot of controversy um, in recent years, because a lot, of, a lot of black people today think that there's so, so much that differentiates the different groups that they shouldn't be co uh, collectively uh, acting together. Do you believe political blackness is something that we should aim to do today? Or do you think it's something of an era gone by? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I think it was needed at the time. It was very relevant. It's the way you spoke back to empire and the way you understood what um, colonialism and imperialism actually meant because as we said then um, we're here because you were there and they didn't just go into Africa they went into Asia and they went into certainly went into China Southeast Asia and all those other places so it was it was really a way of responding um, to colonialism and anti-imperialism I think I think maybe today the issues that particularly young people, well, not just young people, but let's say young people face might be different and they have to find their own way of articulating it um, rather than, um, you know, latch onto a particular term that was used then. I mean, before that you had terms like negritude, yes? We don't say that negritude was... Uh, a terrible term. I think it was it was good and it was right for its time. Yes, at that particular period, we had to include everyone to in order to make that stand against um, those acts of racism that that we're experiencing and the way it was being experienced. So I think that interrogation has to go on, and it's not about whether it's right or whether it's wrong, it was of its time. And yes, you should interrogate it and see whether it's necessary now. And we see that today again, black women are still the most marginalized group in society. What is your message to the black women of today and how would you advise them to move forward? You've always been like the bedrock of of all the, the struggles that black people have waged 
certainly in in the UK. That hasn't always been recognized, but, and it's not, um, and we've, like myself, we've been through one phase of it, but as Stella would say, a luta continua, it still goes on, and that we've made some gains, but they are provisional, and there's lots more work that needs to be done and you have to you have to continue but but recognize that there's no you don't have to make any apologies for what you do is that you are you know we're strong and fierce people dr beverly bryan thank you so much for agreeing to this interview <laughs>